We are so glad you've joined us today for our Sunday broadcast of Abiding in the Word with Dave Love, Senior Pastor of Calvary Castle Rock. Today, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, so let's listen in now to Pastor Dave. Soon your trials will be over. And so now let's go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. We read this. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because it was the house and lineage of of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, Caesar Augustus, at this time, his real name was Caius Octavius, and he was a great nephew of Julius Caesar. Ancient historians have told tells us that he was a born fighter uh, who clawed his way to power by defeating Antony and, and Cleopatra, and then through considerable genius and force of his person, gave the empire a solidness that it was to endure for centuries. And so he really is the one that brought together, that made the the Roman Senate, the, the Roman Republic, now into the Roman Empire, was through him. And so uh, Caius Octavius did not want to be called dictator because it suggested a temporary office. He did not want to be called king because it did not signify enough power. And so in consultation with the Roman Senate, Augustus was created for him. And Augustus means holy or revered one. And that word was was, uh, reserved exclusively for the gods that they worshipped. And so Augustus was showing at that point that this is where um, Rome started to lead towards now the Caesars becoming godlike and now they could be worshipped as God. And that all started with Augustus Caesar. And it was also at this time that many of the Greek cities in Asia, Asia Minor, adopted Caesar Augustus' birthday, September 23rd, as, and, and during that birthday celebration, they would hail him as Savior. As a matter of fact, in one of the um, cities there, Halicarnassus, they found an inscription that says, the Savior of the world. And they were giving that, they, they were giving that to Caesar Augustus. And I find that very, very interesting because it's under these conditions that the true savior of the world actually enters into the world, was under this. It was also during this time that is known as the Pax Romana, meaning a great time of peace for Rome, that they had security on all their borders. They were not advancing the Roman Empire at that time. As a matter of fact, it was during that time that the Temple of Janus was closed. The Temple of Janus is an idol that they would go and worship it's in Rome by the Roman Forum, and it's a, a two-faced uh, uh, entity uh, that you would go and worship, and it was a god of boundaries. And so whenever they were at war, the, the, the uh, temple was open, and people were going in and making sacrifice and petitioning this god to expand their boundaries. But when they were not in war, the temple was closed, and at this time it was closed because it was during the great time of the Pax Romana, this great peace that Rome supposedly brought upon the land. But when I look at this, I see that the true Savior, the true Prince of Peace, is about to be born under these circumstances. And so it's at this time that Caesar Augustus himself, he makes a decree, uh, a registration for tax purposes. Um, We have Joseph and Mary marching under these orders. They have to go to their hometown in order to be registered, which was in Bethlehem, being that uh, they were under the the lineage of, of David there. 
And so they have to travel to Bethlehem. And so when we look at that, we kind of see that Caesar Augustus begins to put in, in play what needs to take place here. But it really isn't Caesar Augustus that makes this happen because God spoke a prophecy over 650 years earlier with the prophet Micah. And God says this to the prophet Micah. He says in chapter 5, verse 2 of Micah, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. He's going to be the prince of peace. And that peace that he's going to bring is a peace between you and God. It's not going to be a peace between your fellow man. And we'll get more into that uh, next week. And so... We see this prophecy that's spoken 650 years before. What that tells me is the real pawn of what's going on here are not Mary and Joseph just, you know, um, fulfilling what it is that uh, Caesar Augustus wants. No, Caesar Augustus is the pawn in God's plan because God spoke this 650 years earlier. And God knew that, that his son had to be born in Bethlehem, even though Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. And so at the time that was right, God is the one that moved and stirred Caesar's heart to want to have this census. Why? Because every time they have a census, they, they, um, they have a greater population in which to tax, and it was completely out of greed, so they could have more money. And so God is the one that's on the throne. He's the one that's stirring the pot, allowing for certain things to happen, making sure other things don't, to bring about his purposes. And his purpose is, his son needs to be born in Bethlehem. So God's in control here. We see the sovereignty of God here. And then it says, the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Now again, many attacks on the Bible, and this is one of them, where some liberal scholars love to point out that Quirinius was not governing Syria at this time, that he governed Syria about seven years later. And so they'll say, see, the Bible is filled with mistakes. It can't be trusted. It's unreliable. What is unreliable are liberal scholars, just so you know. Okay, those are the ones that are unreliable. Luke uses a word here meaning governor, and it's the Greek word hegemon. And what hegemon is, it's applied to a, a, a vast uh, array of, of servant leaders, people in leadership in, in any sort of government. It would be a prefix, it would be provincial governors, uh, even Caesar himself, as well as the, the word is used in a wide term applying to uh, Pilate or Festus and Felix and to general rulers. Leader, commander, chief would fall into that category of hegemon. This, word, this term would have applied to Quirinius as many times in his political career as a general term. And so Syria would have several individuals that could be properly so addressed at that time as that, as this word hegemon. Also, recent historical investigation has proved that Quirinius was governor of Cilicia, which was annexed to Syria at the time of the Lord's birth. And so Cilicia, which he ruled, being a province of Syria, he is called governor, which he actually was under Syria's leadership. And so it is a perfect word to be able to use at this time. And so it goes on and it says in verse 6, So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there's no room for them in 
the inn. Now, the word inn here is a Greek word, kataluma. It's probably the crudest of all arrangements. Um, Cataluma has been described in many different ways, but if you could just kind of picture this, that you have kind of a sloping hillside, and that they would dig into the hillside for kind of like a cave, and then outside of that cave, they would put um, kind of like a fencing structure there. Now, above that hillside, you would have a, a dwelling place, so that people that would come would bring their animals there underneath them, into that cave and, and that outdoor kind of fenced-in area, and then they would go up, up on top of that hillside into the dwelling place there in order to spend the night. That place right there was filled. There's no place. And so they had to go down below where the animals were. They had to go down where the animals were. Now think about that for a moment. We have the, the uh, um, Christmas song, Silent Night, Holy Night. And you think of, they're just out in the open, and everything's silent, and they're under the stars, and that's not the way it was. If you've been to any sort of circus, or rodeo, or the zoo, you smell the animals before you get to see the animals. This is where they were. They were in that environment. And their brain, and they're, they're you know, making all the noises that animals make, and things like that, as the Lord himself is coming into this world. That's the place that they were in. They were in that place. Joseph probably sees Mary in pain, sees her and, and, and smells and, and sees all the animals around them, seeing their poverty and the people around them, seeing their indifference for them, the humiliation of not having the privacy and decency of the room. Also, the shame of not being able to provide for young Mary the way that she needs to be provided for. She's in crisis mode. She needs dire attention, and yet no attention is being given to those around her. And even when they go to the end, they say, we understand she's about to give birth, but that's no concern of ours. There's no room. There's no room. There's no room. Are you telling me there's not one person that's in that won't sleep outside so my wife can be able to give birth inside a room? No room. No room. And so they had to go down into those very, very crude accommodations. And when you think about that, where Jesus was born, it's much like a homeless couple that gives birth in the alleys of Denver with everything that's going on around them, with the cars and the sounds of city life and things like that, giving birth in an alley there in Denver. And when you see a child come into this world under such settings, you couldn't have lower prospects for that child's future. And that's the same thing with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. No other child that day seems so destined for insignificance in this world. Would you agree? And yet... There's no child that has ever been born that would impact the world like Jesus did. We cannot forget this is where Christianity began. We got to understand that it begins with need and humility. The humility, the humbleness of Jesus being brought into this world. And why? As an example. It's an example because he is born in those who are poor of spirit. He doesn't come to uh, the pomp and circumstance. He doesn't come to the kings and the rich and and those who are arrogant and self-sufficient. He comes to those who are humble, those who are in need. That's who he comes to, and that's how he is born. This is seen through everyday logic. Joseph and Mary were insignificant nobodies from an insignificant town. They were peasants, they were poor, they were uneducated, of no significance, but herein lies the mystery and the grace of God and the irony of it all. The king of kings does not come to the proud and arrogant, but to the poor and the powerless. There is no room for them at the end. And I'm here to tell you something. Jesus is a gentleman. And where there is no room, he will not go. 
Paul tells us something about ourselves, that this is a tent, that this is a house. This is our in, our bodies. The question is, is there room for Jesus at your inn? It's a great question to ask. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says this about the church of Laodicea. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. Is there room in the inn for the Lord Jesus Christ? Or have you told him there's no room, there's no room, there's no room? He won't go where he's not wanted. But he stands at the door and he knocks. And he's a gentleman. He won't force his way in. And he sits there and he goes... Kind of a sweet, friendly knock. You probably have people that are a little bit obnoxious when they come to the door. And it's like, you just go, whoa, you know. But it's a sweet little knock. Sometimes we ignore knocks. I don't know about you, but I'm busy. I'm doing something. It's like Saturday afternoon. I pretty much know who that knock is going to be on a Saturday afternoon. Selling what they're selling, things like that. All my kids are inside. They already have keys. It's not one of them. And sometimes I just ignore it, you know, because I, I just think it's a salesperson or somebody, you know, selling religion uh, or something like that. And so I, I do. I ignore it sometimes. There's those sweet little knocks. But there's some other knocks that you just know the person. You already know the person. You know their knock. They're very, very, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, that's a friendly knock. It has to be somebody that you know, right? Nobody does that unless you know the person, so it's probably friend, not foe. So you would go and you would answer the door. But that's what Jesus does. He's just kind of like, very friendly, wants you to answer the door. But you don't. You don't answer the door. This is how God knocks at your heart. You're at work, and someone comes up, and they just invite you to church. Hey, I found this great church. It's Calvary Chapel, Castle Rock. Of course it has to be that one. And I just want you to come. It's just a great place to fellowship. And I'm having a great time there, my wife and I. And just really is upon our heart to invite you to church. That's God. But you said, no, I'm busy. I got, I got things to do. And, and so there's another knock where somebody in your neighborhood just says, hey, we go to Calvary Chapel, Castle Rock. Just wanted to let you know that it's a great place. We'd love for you to come. That's God knocking. But you keep saying no. This is what's so great about God. He doesn't stop knocking. Sometimes it'll feel very annoying. It's not just. And you're going, oh my goodness. And so you finally go to the door and it's what? How you doing? And you know what that's like? You're being invited to come to church, you're being invited to, to go out with somebody for lunch, or he wants to talk to you, it's this person now, it's, your, it's from your uh, growing up, a friend of yours, your best friend or whatever, is telling you how they came to know the Lord, and wherever you turn, someone's either inviting you to church or told you about how they've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can't get rid of these Christians. And it's become obnoxious, it's wherever you turn, someone's telling you about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's that continual knocking. It's annoying, isn't it? Try and, avo- try and ignore it if you can. You wonder why you have all these obnoxious Christians all around you telling about the love of Jesus Christ. That's God. And he loves you too much to ignore you. And he'll do whatever he can, but he won't bust the door down. He'll knock. That knock can maybe get quite obnoxious, but he's still knocking because that's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves you. And he stands at the door and he knocks, but he will not go in 
where he's not invited. And here's the thing. When it came to fellowshipping in Jewish culture, when someone would invite you in to have uh, fellowship with them and to dine with them, what they were saying is, is that your concerns are my concerns. Your joys are my joys. Your hurts are my hurts. And when I receive that invitation, what I'm saying, and you know what? Your concerns are my concerns as well. Your hurts are my hurts. Your joys are my joys as well. And so you become a, a kind of one-minded and, and, and become very intimate in the sense of you, you're very concerned about one another. So when the Lord knocks and you open up and you invite him in, he is saying, I'm concerned about you. I love you. Your joys, your hurts, I want to be mine. When you invite him in, what you're saying is that your concerns are my concerns. Your joys and hurts are also my joys and hurts. So when you receive the Lord, what you're saying is, God, your concerns are now my concerns. Your joys are my joys. And your pains are my pains. And the only way you're going to know what God's concerns are is if you're reading in God's word. So you, you find out. And what you'll find out is that God cares about others. And what that tells me is that I need to care about others. That I need to care about others. And when there's pain and suffering in the world, God is sensing that pain and suffering. And so because of that, I'm sensing that pain and suffering too. And, and it provokes me to pray. It provokes, it provokes me to pray. And so understand that it's not just receiving the Lord, but as you receive the Lord, you're saying, now my concerns, my, my whole desires, everything about myself is now changing because I want to be like you. I want to be like you. And so they take Jesus, they, they set him in a manger. That manger would be a stone manger. It would be a stone manger. Um, we see that when we are in uh, Israel. Um, when, we, when, when Jesus uh, first goes to Cana of Galilee, when we go to Cana, you'll be able to see a stone manger. And that's exactly what Jesus would have been put in. It wouldn't be wood. They don't have enough wood to be able to do that. So a manger for animals and stuff like that was always stone. And, so, and when you go there, you'll see plenty of stone, and you'll understand that. And so I'm sure that they would have put some straw. They would have put some fabric down. There's something to make it come. I'm sure they didn't just go boom and just drop Jesus in the, in the stone, you know. But it's still a very, very crude, you know, um, uh, manger. And so you'll be able to see that when you go with us, and, and we'll, we'll go and visit Cana. Um, and so he's there. Um, they wrap him in swaddling cloths. It's the same thing as grave cloths, by the way. Strips of cloth that you, um, uh, that you put upon a baby was the same as a grave cloths, which makes sense because he was born to die. And it speaks again of what it is that he came to do when we... When we um, read about the wise men, when they come, they bring them gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold speaks of, uh, represents kingship as the chief of all the metals. Frankincense is incense, and it speaks of the priesthood, that he came to be priest. And myrrh is embalming fluid, and it speaks of he was born to die. The interesting thing is in the millennial kingdom, uh, people still bring him gold and frankincense, but they don't bring him, in myrrh, bring him myrrh. And you can read about that in Isaiah chapter 60. They're bringing him gold and frankincense, but not myrrh. Why? Because he was only born to die once. That's why. That's why. Although the death interrupts the, the teaching of Socrates and Plato and Buddha and every other philosopher and thinker that you can think of, not so with Jesus. When he died and rose again, his ministry at that point really took off through his disciples and all that he's doing around the world. He came to die once for the sin of mankind. And so the question is, how do you respond to knowing this? 
How do you respond knowing that God would rather die for you than live without you? Think about that for a moment. How do you respond to knowing this, that God would rather die for you rather than live without you? He chose to die for you rather than to live for all of eternity without you. That, that deserves, that action itself deserves and demands a response. What are you going to do about that? That great love that God showed, that I love you so much that in your sinful condition, I'm not going to just let you die out to where I get to live for all of eternity without you. I'm willing to die in order to live for all of eternity with you. No greater love. No greater love will you ever come across than what God did through his son, Jesus Christ, dying for the sin of mankind. Now this, I think, is very, very interesting because this gift has been given. Now, um, my cousin, uh, years ago, once came to me. He's a very benevolent guy, doing all sorts of works for other people, and, and he really has a heart for the poor and the needy and things like that, but he doesn't know the Lord. And so I told him, that's great, but you need to come know the Lord, that when you stand before him, you're still going to go to hell like everybody else that does not bow his knee and receive the gift that was given. He says, why is that? After all these good works, would he not receive that? I said, well, let me turn around for you. God gave a gift in his son. If you don't receive his gift, why should he receive your gifts? Why should he receive your gifts? When someone gives you a gift and you do not acknowledge the receiving of that gift, that's probably the most rude and inconsiderate thing that there is. And so that's what you've done with God in him giving his gift. And we need to understand that. There is something known as sympathetic resonance. It's a fact when you have two in-tune pianos in the same room, when you strike the note on one piano, that same note will gently respond or resonate on the other, even though it has not been touched. It's called sympathetic resonance. Christ's humble beginnings into this world, his instrument, his humanity was like ours in every way except he had no sin. And when the chord is struck in the weakness of our human experience in our human instrument, it resonates in his. You have never gone through anything that Jesus himself has not gone through. Oh, really? Has he ever been rejected? He came to his own and his own did not receive him. That isn't just one heartbreak. That's hundreds of thousands, if not millions, that he came to, and they did not receive him. He was rejected by them. He understands rejection. He understands pain. He understands everything that you're going through. Whatever you're going through, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that resonates with him. He feels what you feel. It's one of the reasons why Mary and Martha, when they were so distraught over their brother Lazarus and how he had died and been four days in the tomb, Jesus knows he's about to resurrect him from the tomb. Jesus knows it's about to be happy, happy, joy, joy. He knows that. And yet it says, Jesus wept. Why? Because he felt the agony and pain that Mary and Martha was going through. That's why. That's why. He he knows what you're going through. He feels it. He's lived it before. It resonates with him. It's one of the reasons why in Hebrews 4.15 it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's gone through it. He knows what it's like. And he knows what it feels like. And I love that about the Lord. Whatever I'm going through, it resonates with him. We don't worship a God who cannot understand us. We do not worship a God that that, that doesn't know the, the human experience. We worship God who does. 
Well, that concludes today's edition of Abiding in the Word with Pastor Dave Love. Tune in next Sunday as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. If you live in the area of Castle Rock and are looking for a church to call home, be sure to come by and visit us. We meet Saturdays at 5 p.m. and our Sunday service times are at 9 and 11 a.m. A combined junior and senior high class meets at the 5 p.m. service on Saturday. On Sunday mornings, high school meets during the 9 a.m. service and the junior high meets at the 11 a.m. service. Our young adults ministry, Arise, meets every Friday at 6.30 p.m. at the church. Child care is offered for all of our weekend services. Calvary Castle Rock is located right off of I-25 and East Wolfensburger Road, directly behind Jack in the Box and the Shell Gas Station, right across from Starbucks. For more information about us on this radio ministry, please visit our website at calvarycr.com or download our free mobile app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. You can also call the church office at 303-663-2514. Thanks again for joining us today. Until our next time together, we want to encourage you to always be abiding in the Word of God. Music